Welcome, Dr. Christman, to the World XP Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the, the time out of your busy schedule. I know when we talked earlier, we had scheduled this like three weeks out, and you had an exact time slot, and I was at the point where I didn't know what I was going to eat for breakfast the next day. So I really appreciate having you on. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. I love talking about this stuff. This is good. So you currently are the Chief Veterinary Officer for MJH, is that correct? And then do you want to sort of fill in the rest for us here? Sure, yeah. So MJH Life Sciences is uh, where I'm the Chief Veterinary Officer at. So it stands for Michael J. Hennessy, and that's our CEO. And so we're um, we're kind of toted as the Hollywood of healthcare, if you will. So we're the number one multimedia media healthcare company in the country. And so we're, we're one, the one that I'm at uh, franchise is one of 56 franchises within our company. So we're about a thousand employees. So, um, but yeah, I oversee the veterinary components of all the continuing education in print online, the publication of DVM 360, as well as our conferences. They're called the, the Fetch conferences, podcasting interviews, um, so many things that I do. And I still practice as well. That's awesome. Sounds like you wear a, a lot of hats in your in your current role. Um, yeah. What what does so you mentioned it's a multimedia company. So what does that sort of entail from like from the vet perspective? Because I know your right. background is very heavy in the veterinary sort of realm. Yeah. yeah. So you know, as a veterinarian, and then also I have a, an MBA degree too. So I, it it kind of seemed really nice to marry both of these passions that I love into this because I. I've just to back up for one moment, like I, I did some speaking for a few years too. I got onto the speaking circuit and started to do things, whether it be for pharmaceutical companies or for these conferences. And so I really do enjoy educating audiences by being either on stage or behind the camera or and just, you know, either pet parents or, um, you know, veterinary professionals. So cut to this opportunity that um, that arose where they, I was asked to spearhead you know, the continued education. So when you become a veterinarian, a doctor, a nurse, even a, a hairdresser too, you need X amount of hours to maintain your licensing. And so I help create these agendas for veterinarians, veterinary technicians, practice managers for them to attend. We have about eight shows that we run a year. So we have that component. And then also we have print and um, online media too. So you know, your journals, your typical education things. I have a, um, a good connection with the veterinary students. So we kind of bridge those, the, the veterinary students, what's important to them uh, into the conversation for veterinarians in our profession. So we do that. And then we do things like Instagram lives and uh, Facebook, and then our podcast. It's important to maintain visibility and um, education throughout our profession. So everybody likes to digest their material differently and how they go about receiving that education. And so that's what I do is trying to find little tidbits, whether it be a 20 minute podcast or on Instagram live or in print or at a live event or virtual, even now with COVID and the pandemic, we go back and forth between live and um, in person. But so we have all these different areas that we can help educate veterinarians to and veterinary professionals to enhance their careers. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast beforehand, just to try and do my homework a little bit and do some more research because I'm not very well versed, but it seemed like to me that it was very geared towards people that are already in in the field a little bit is that right is that fair to say yeah so you know most of it is um, veterinarians whether they be 
uh, general practitioners or specialists, and you may ask yourself, what does it mean to be a specialist? Well, you know, after veterinary school, you can go on and pursue another, believe it or not, four or five years afterwards to become a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist, surgeon, radiologist. So, you know, that's who's on my show and on the guests or whatever too. And those are some of our speakers that we have. Um, because, you know, in general practice, we do it all. We wear all these hats, you know, we interpret radiographs, we're looking at blood work, we're putting animals down, we're dealing with end of life care, new puppies, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And so within that's what makes this profession so cool and diverse with the fact that we see so many different species, you know, I mean, I love human medicine, they have one species, whereas on the veterinary side, we have multiple. And then on top of it, we have specialty fields too. So um, yeah, it's it's pretty vast. Yeah. How did you decide um, in the back in the beginning, I guess we'll say, that you wanted to be a vet and get into this sort of field? Yeah. And another interesting thing about veterinary medicine is that it's a calling. And you hear this often. I hear this from many of my students and um, my mentees is that you feel it either earlier in life or it's been simmering on the back burner and you're doing a career and you wish you did the veterinary fields kind of a thing. I knew when I was five, I knew right when I was, I, my parents told me that, um, you know, you just have this love for animals, a connection, a deep purpose and meaning with them. And so um, I, when I was young, I always remember this, you know, situations of going to the library and looking at books of animals, just learning about them, not just like, fictional characters, but like understanding dog breeds and zoo animals and things like that. And my mom and dad, um, you know, we're not veterinarians by any means, but we grew up with one dog, but we were big animal lovers. And so um, the average age, this is a fun fact, you may not, may not know this, but the average age where veterinarians decide they want to become veterinarians is one of the youngest. It's eight years of age. Eight. That is really early. And so what that means and what I, what, you know, this to, for your listeners to understand, is that we as veterinary professionals, we do a lot of elementary school training, career days, and those kinds of influences because we know that 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 spark happens earlier. So, like we even back up, or we don't do you know we can. I'm telling you, we could do undergrad, high school, but that's how early we have to go and you know help nurture these relationships. And you know, I also say this to my colleagues: is don't close doors out on kids that are interested in just learning and watching you for an hour or whatever, because we know early on and, you know, in our age, and you hear other ones that do like career changes, you know, they one of my classmates, she was uh, worked on wall street, you know, and for 30 years, and then she decided to go back to school. I have a friend that was an, she's an actress. She was a scream queen and in Hollywood and LA, and she went back to vet school and now is a veterinarian. So there's so many other roles. Don't get me wrong, but that's tends to be the journey that you see. And that's what makes it unique in this profession that, um, you know, we enter the profession one because of our heart, and two, we have to have a passion for science, math, and I do tell this to other um, to prospective individuals that are interested in becoming a veterinarian. You know, nothing irks me more is when I hear this: I want to work with animals because I hate people. That is like the biggest falsehood. <laughs> that you can ever hear because animals don't speak. There's not a single animal that can tell you, doc, my arm hurts. You yeah. have to have the most incredible bedside manner to communicate with pet owners, colleagues, team members um, about you know services that are gonna be offered to an animal, whether you're working in a zoo, dealing with wildlife, small animal, large animal. 
it's all people oriented. And then you throw animals in the mix. So you have to have that gift of that ability to communicate with people. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the, I have a small dog as well. He's about one and a half, but every time I've taken him to the vet, they're always so nice. And so like, when I go there, I always feel like I understand what's going on, even though I probably don't, but yeah, it, they lay all the information out in a way that um, is very easy to understand. And here's what you need to know. And here's what you need to do. And they make it very simple and, and easy for me, which is super nice. Um, and I would imagine for other people as well, especially people that have, are, have kids running around and all sorts of other stuff that it's that that level of communication is super important. But uh, I want to go back to so you you figured out at uh, eight, you said, and then or five, do you say five? Yeah, five, I think five. And so you're you're going through school and there's not really um, at least where, where I grew up, there's not really a vet sort of track that you can take so how did you sort of keep that interest going throughout your early like late childhood into college yeah so yeah in high school you know you really want to and I I say this to the kids you really want to hone in on your sciences and on your maths because it is a a big foundation that's going to lay the groundwork for what you're going to do everything starts to build on top of one another so there's two things that you have to kind of nurture is one is the science component, science and math. And then the other is getting some experience. And so, you know, what happens to the kid that's 12 years of age that is not old enough to be working at a veterinary hospital? Well, that's when you start being more creative and looking at things like either volunteering, shadowing, you can shadow a veterinarian here and there and watch, you can um, do foster and rescue. So there's that. So you do that while you're going through high school, you have to, and I'm going to call it what it is. You have to have good grades. You have to listen, you're a doctor, you know, like you're dealing with life and death in your hands too. You're going to be doing surgery. So there's a lot of things. So you have to have the, you know, a pretty strong GPA to get into an undergraduate program. And so I went to Rutgers university and they had an animal science program. And so a lot of these programs throughout the country do offer your pre-veterinary prerequisites to get you into veterinary school. So they know. So, but other tracks that you could do is biology, you know, all these different things. But animal science for me, because I knew that I wanted to go down that road. But, but a big but to this is you don't know if you're going to get into vet school because vet school is really tough to get into. There's only about 32 vet schools that are in the country. At the time I applied, I think it was only 25. So, um, so that's tough. So you have to have a plan B. You have, and I say that's everyone. Always have a plan B because you can reapply. I've had students and I've seen people that have applied three or four times and they, they get into vet school. So never give up on your dream, but you're going to have to have a plan just in case. So my plan was I'm going to go into pharmaceuticals because um, I was working for Johnson & Johnson at the time while I was at Rutgers. And I said, in case I don't get in, I'm going to work. I like this a lot. I like lab animal science. This is fun. But um, I got in and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like a dream come true. Cause it really is a dream come true. It really is. And um, so I got into Iowa state university and um, you know, with that being said, I continued to be working at a veterinary hospital. In fact, um, I worked at the vet hospital where I was the kid at and all full circle, <laughs> the vet hospital was right across the street from the high school and all my years, the job shadowing internship, vet school, I go right back to the hospital where I was associate veterinarian to chief of staff of the hospital. So that's awesome. Full circle for you, definitely. It really is. Yeah. Um, when you applied for vet school, given the lack of or the the small number of, of vet schools, did you kind of just 
cast a very wide net or did you have a few specific ones that you were more interested in in than others? Because I know other college programs, you're like, oh, this one has a better focus in this thing that I'm interested in and this one doesn't, so I'm not going to apply there. Is that the case for vet schools as well? It is. You know, I, I, everyone asks me too, you know, where should I apply to vet school? I said the one that gets you in. So like, so whether, I mean, there's usually one application, there's a general application that can disseminate it to multiple schools, which is great. So, um, so you could do that, but try not to get yourself emotionally attached to a school that you're most passionate about because you may not get in, you know, I mean, if you're really stuck and hung up on that school, then maybe keep fighting the fight, apply again next year, all those different things. But um, yeah, like I, at, at the time, they had what's called contract seats. So I'm from New Jersey and in New Jersey, we don't have a veterinary school. So there were certain seats that were reserved for the New Jersey residents throughout the country. Iowa State was one of them. And I strategically chose to apply to those vet schools that would get me in as in-state tuition because the average student loan debt is around $300,000. It's a, it's a, Ooh. it's a hunker of a, of a yeah. loan, you know? So that was part of my plan too, is like, okay, I don't want to come out with a huge student loan debt. You know, I want to do something sustainable. So I did that. That's where I got into Iowa state and I got into the Instagram, but nowadays I don't have them. So, but my recommendations is to go to the school that works for you and that lets you in. And you can even apply internationally too. So out in the islands, they have veterinary schools too. And then abroad too. So Australia, New Zealand, England, you know, and I see it all over uh, the world now, which is great. So again, you have to be yourself. You have to be open. If this is your dream, this is your passion. Follow that dream and let the school go along for the ride. Second, you know. So say you get into you know UC Davis or you go into Tufts or you're at the Islands. You're going. You know, like if this is what you want to do, pack your bags because you're going to go and you're going to do it. Yeah, hundred percent. I have a I have a friend that actually got into UC Davis Vet School. She just finished her first year there. So. She, oh, excellent. Yeah, she said a lot of the same things about just wanted to do it forever, loves animals, all the all that sort of thing. So right. hopefully, knock on wood, she gets through and with flying colors. But um, I also one of the few things that I do know about veterinary schools. There's a lot of different um, paths as far as like small animals. You, there's like zoo, I think zoo veterinary, um, yep. and then exotics. I think is another one. So how how different are those paths in school? And then to practice like once you get into one is it difficult to sort of change and go back to a more general practitioner or like what what does that sort of process look like yeah it's a great discussion because i think the general public is just fascinated about this too this is just like you know because i'll give you an example so when you take your boards when you take your national boards it's a six-hour exam and like my first question was about an alligator and i said you have got to be kidding me like are you (laughs) kidding me am i being punked right now And, but like, you realize it's reptilian medicine, you know, like, okay, Adam, you got this. It's reptiles. You studied this before, you know, then I had a question about an ostrich. Well, that's bird medicine. So you kind of know those things, but to your point, that's where internships really help. So you can go in, you're going to have to do X amount of hours in small animal and X amount of animals, hours in large animals. So like equine, cattle, sheep, and goats, because that's what's on your board. But if you want to go into zoo a little bit further, you can do these externships or internships on your fourth year rotation. You can pick out your rotations where you want to go. And, you know, they'll gladly accommodate you. If you're interested in shelter medicine, for instance, you can go ahead and do shelter medicine. So, um, Yes, you can easily do those things. Now, if you wanted to go all the way and be boarded in zoo medicine, that's another four years. So you go down the internship road, then you go into specialty service so that you'll be a specialized veterinarian 
in zoo medicine, you know? So um, like one of my friends, she works at Disney's animal kingdom and that she takes care of the animals there. So, you know, I can't do, I, I don't know how to do surgery on a gorilla or all that stuff because I didn't have the training for it. But this is what, again, this is a cool part about veterinary medicine to your listeners. I could, I can do a career change. I can still stay as a veterinarian. I can take the classes and continue education that I need. I may not necessarily need to be boarded in it, but I can continue to do it. And I can still do it because your license is that diverse and vast. You can do those different things. So um, so that's what's pretty cool. So, you know, not to pivot on this, but I, I do want to bring up one point is like, if you feel stuck as a veterinarian, like, I don't know if I want to keep being an equine veterinarian seeing horses, you can easily take all these continuing education courses that, that, that we do that I was talking about earlier. You can go for it. So, you know, the passion can still stay alive because compassion fatigue is a big thing in our pro in our profession. It's a burnout is huge. Burnout is big. Yeah. That makes sense. Just based on the amount of animals and then people that you see, and you have to maintain that sort of positive yes. energy and high communication yes. skills. And one day you're going to be like, oh, I don't want to talk to people today, or I don't want right. to do whatever. So yeah, that makes sense. Total sense. Which route did you, did you choose the general route or yeah. which? Okay. So what so is the, what does that entail? So I did general practice and uh, so it's exclusive small animal dog and cat. So, and you can see other things like they, they refer to them as pocket pets. So like your ferrets, hamsters, chinchillas, guinea pigs, like you can occasionally see those things too. Um, but yeah, so I, I exclusively sm saw uh, dog and cats and um, surgery, radiology, you know, anything from spays and neuters to growth removals to, you know, abdominal surgery um, cancers, nodules, all those different things. We do a lot of um, cytology and diagnostics. So looking at blood work, looking at things under the microscope, dermatology is huge. If your dog is itchy, he's got allergies, cats, same thing. Preventative medicine, it's a huge part. I tell everyone we're veterinarians, we're not vaccinarians, but if we, we, we like to vaccinate against infectious diseases, such as December, you know, so a lot of education happens in those exam rooms, a lot because we want to empower the pet parent is what I say, you know, we really want to make sure that we keep that human animal bond super strong. And then a lot of end of life care, a lot of end of life care. So you got to remember, our animals don't nearly, nearly live as long as us, right? right? So, you know, the general life expectancy of like medium sized dogs is like 12 years. So, you know, you're practicing for like me, I've been 20 years. So like, you're seeing them from puppy to end, you know, that that can get very fatiguing. You know, there could be days where you could be putting down 10, 12, 15 animals in one shift because it's that you just don't know what you're going to see. Then you can have a day where you're not dealing with any of that stuff, but you got to be ready for that emotional roller coaster. And so vet school trains you for those things. But again, you're a human. You enter this profession because you love what you do. So seeing that sadness or people that have emotional or financial circumstances makes it challenging as the general practitioner, which is what I do. And so that makes it tough. Yeah. Does it ever, I would, it never probably gets easier, but do, is there a point where you get, where you have the animals at the end of life care and it kind of get used to it a little bit? Like, does it get easier over time? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Because you understand the why. It, it, you hear this at the end after, you, you know, I put an animal down. 
the owners were always saying, my gosh, like, I can't believe how peaceful it was. Like, I wish they had this in human medicine, like all those different things. So it is an honor to be there at their final stages and to let them cross over with the dignity and respect that these animals rightfully deserve. So that's what you have to keep holding on to the why behind what you do. You know, like it is a beautiful service that you're providing them. It's a very, very gut wrenching, tough one to do. But the fact that they're free from pain and suffering, um, is a nice thing that we have that ability to do that. And so that is part of being a veterinarian. It really is. Yeah. And I want to ask one more question on, on this. don't want to go too down in the dumps or anything, but just yeah. out of my own curiosity, is there a, is there a, a way that the pet owner, like, uh, so I read, I remember reading like sometimes the pet owners don't want to be in the room. And so the animal is scared when that, when that happens yes. or that sort of thing, is there a proper or like a way that you would recommend that happen yeah so one thing about dr crispin yours truly is i keep it real i tell it like it is and so to your listeners this is a big thing your animals need you they need you you need to be there with them and i feel like it's your um it's your pet parent responsibility you you brought them into your home and you know you're going to be there to let them leave this earth with them at the very end it's terrible. It's horrible, but they need you there. I find it in my experience, I'm just speaking from me, that it's much more comforting um, when the owners or the pet parents are there with them. So um, because they feel at ease, like it's going to be okay, you know, so sometimes they leave. I've had many that have left. And depending on the situation, it's tough because, you know, they're looking for them. And that's mm -hmm. like, you know, that's tough, you know, so. Yeah, but. definitely. Um, pivoting away from the sad stuff. Yeah. Um, in, in, well, actually one more quick question on this. Um, you, you mentioned, you call them pet parents rather than owners. Is that a conscious yes. choice that you or the veterinary community has made? So the veterinary community has done that for us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's why I go back and forth. You hear me saying the word owners and pet parent what let me ask you like what sounds better to you because you you have a dog so do you does it sound better as a pet parent or an owner definitely pet parent it's just something that doesn't really roll off the tongue at least right for me yeah, yeah. it doesn't but like so we have uh, not I, the pet parents have really changed that um with us because so this is what has happened and this is a, and a very exciting thing so like to pivot to something very exciting is the fact that pet adoption is at an all-time high and what's happening in uh, in the world, not just the United States, but in the world, is that um, you know the younger generation, so the Zillennials, for instance, they're not interested in necessarily um, getting married and having kids and having a house right away. The number one thing that they're interested in is having a fur baby together. And notice again, I said fur baby, not a pet. We change those, right? There's a perception. These are your kids, your fur kids. It really are. And they're willing to do anything for them, you know, anything. And then they'll decide, maybe we'll get married. We're definitely going to get a place together because I want to make sure that we have a great backyard for our dog or a wonderful house for our cats because that's what they think of now. Mm -hmm. This is a big thing with realtors too. They talk about this. Like the realtors are always, always looking for the backyard and checking out, you know, what it looks like for their animals. Used to never be like that. Yeah. Um, never be like that. You know, like, oh, I wanted a cul-de-sac because of like my kids are playing. Not as often as you think. It's more like, 
I want to see what the yard is. Is it fenced in? Do I need to get a better fence because my dog? So it's so fascinating and it's wonderful that we love that because the human animal bond is so strong. So that's where the verbiage has changed because the world has changed for the better, which is something that I've noticed when I was a kid. I said, you know, I, I hate that they call them all, it's just a dog or like you're the owner. I mean, we still use these words, don't get me wrong, but yeah. um, in the social media space too, because that's what I do, um, it, it's very soft and it's um, warm. It, it sounds better. An owner sounds like, well, I own my car, you know, like, so, but I also own my dog. Yes, you do. Technically by law, you do. There's no difference between you owning your dog versus owning a car because pets are considered property. But in the world of compassion and bedside manner, it just doesn't sound good, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. Um, I know we got to get you out of here in a little bit, but no worries. You mentioned uh, in the in the email that you sent, you held the uh, numerous roles within the veterinary hospital. Um, can yeah. you kind of go through a little bit of how the vet hospital works from from the inside and all the roles that kind of exist and sort of what they do for people that would have no idea? They maybe talk to the receptionist and the vet, and that's about it. And this is a great discussion too, because I want your listeners to understand if you love animals, you do not necessarily have to be a veterinarian to, to love animals. There's so many different career paths. So I started out as a kennel assistant too. And being a kennel assistant is just as important as being a veterinarian. You know, we have to make sure everything's clean, that they're free from um, infectious and diseases that are transmissible to people. So, um, but that gives you great exposure because you get to understand behavior at the same time, cat behavior, dog behavior. So start there too. It's a great place. Um, a receptionist or they're called CSRs, client service representatives. Um, they have, they are like the nucleus to a veterinary hospital because they're dealing with the phones, dealing with invoicing out clients, difficult conversations too. You know, payment, I have no money or, you know, upset pet parents. There's a whole bunch. So I encourage your listeners to um, assume that position as a veterinary uh, receptionist because it is one of the toughest, I'll tell you that. And then there's veterinary assisting and veterinary technician. And those are careers that you can actually go to school for. So the veterinary assistant program is, is what I taught for eight years. It's a one semester course. It gives you that visibility. It's in the continuing education component but you get that exposure to do what you need to do. Plus you see hands-on activity. So that's great. You support the veterinarian, you support the veterinary technician. The veterinary technician is a two-year position or two-year education process to be licensed as a LVT, licensed veterinary technician or registered veterinary technician, an RVT. Um, and you have that ability too. So you're working in surgery, anesthesiology, um, everything. I mean, we would be nothing, veterinarians would be nothing without the veterinary technician. So. It's all about teamwork in this in the hospital. And finally, there's a veterinary practice manager. So you need somebody to kind of be the captain to drive the ship, to look at the financials, to make sure, and, and human resources, because there are multiple personalities, there's multiple roles that are being played every day to make sure that the day-to-day activities are executed efficiently and effectively. And so having a veterinary practice manager is that. And now you can play you could be a veterinary technician and you know level up as a veterinary practice manager you can even become a certified veterinary practice manager there's courses that you could take in an exam so there's so many different careers again within veterinary medicine that you could do and you do not have to be a veterinarian in order to do those things gotcha all sorts of different things i think so if if i were to bring my dog in and it was recommended that like 
he his leg was hurt or whatever, and it was recommended he needed some sort of surgery. And you mentioned the specialists earlier. Does that work sort of the same as humans do? You kind of refer them to you refer them to a different a specialist or that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it depends on the comfort level of the veterinarians too. Um, you know, it, me orthopedics is not my wheelhouse, but I know great veterinary orthopedists that do do it. But some general practitioners do do it. Let's just say like a torn ACL, for instance, it's very common injury that you'll see. Um, but yeah, so you could refer that to a board certified veterinary orthopedist. And so they would be able to do it or certain general practitioners do it as well. So again, it, it, it really varies. And that, again, that's what I love about this profession. Like if you want to be extra passionate about something, like I want to do, I don't want to be boarded as an orthopedic, but I really want to do orthopedics, then go for it. You can do it. So it just diversifies your portfolio as a veterinarian that much more. And pet parents are really appreciated too. The fact that maybe they don't have to drive two hours to see a specialist you can, it can be done at your, at your clinic. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially if people are super busy, right? It's a convenience thing. Um, I was listening to, I think it was your most recent podcast. I don't remember his name, but he went to Southern university. Dr. Robinson. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he mentioned being um, in charge of like all the veterinary hospitals in the West Coast or something like that. I yes. don't, I don't recall exactly what the context was, but what is that? How does that sort of pyramid look like from the standpoint of what is what would his role be? Yeah, so there's corporate veterinary medicine within the profession too. So, um, so for example, you probably heard of like Banfield pet, pet hospitals that you see at PetSmart, Petco, mm-hmm. um, or PetSmart, I should say. Um, you may have seen signs that say VCA, whatever, and that's Veterinary Centers of America. And so those are corporate entities and there, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's so there's um, maybe a CEO that oversees it could be five practices, it could be 500 practices. And so within there too, to his, what he was doing is he was overseeing the medical, the veterinarians that were um, the um, medical directors for each hospital to help elevate and advance veterinary medicine within their uh, corporation. So there are a lot of C-suite positions within veterinary medicine too, because of the corporate um, entities that are here, which are wonderful. Another great opportunity to look into. So with Dr. Robinson, you know, he he wears many, many hats through all uh, his journey. It was fantastic what he does. So, um, but yeah, I think, again, it's another great um, arena to look into. And then also one other thing that brings your attention is like working into pharmaceuticals too. Every, um, most veterinary pharmaceutical companies need veterinarians too. They're called either professional sales veterinarians or whatever they call them. Now. Um, but you can work within that industry as well too. So um, partner with uh, the latest and greatest of products or research and looking at studies and data, nutrition companies, all those different things. So, you know, working for the USDA, one of my friends, she works on Capitol Hill as a veterinarian. Um, I have another veteran who works for Delta Airlines, and she takes care of oversees all the travel for animals that are flying in and out of countries, um, dealing with breeders and flying them accordingly in case they get sick. But so like the list goes on of things that you can do within this profession. Yeah, I didn't even consider the airline one. Because I know that yeah. um, I was flying not too not too recently, and I saw in the security line a guy just had a cat like perched on his shoulder, and like he had the little carry on next to him, and I was like, oh, that's odd. But yeah, then yeah. you never even realize. Yeah, 
I don't know. A lot of these airports nowadays, they're going to be making them uh, pet-friendly areas too. Like it's one thing mm -hmm. to have reliefing stations for the dogs to do their business because before they board a flight, but they're going to make it more of like a dog park inside where you can sit and hang with your dog while you're waiting to board a flight or whatever, you know, because, you know, animals, we, we travel more with our animals and our cats. So these airports are becoming more pet-friendly restaurants, as you see, you know, hotels, we want to travel with our animals too. We want to vacation with them. The The pendulum has shifted substantially. And I say this to the people that own restaurants, and especially coming out of this pandemic, like if you want to make, if you want to make a living, like really turn a buck, you make it pet friendly and they will come. <laughs> oh, for sure. Absolutely. They will come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you have time for one more question. Yeah, then. Sure. Okay, perfect. So uh, in other academic sort of fields, when you're going through the graduate school process, um, a lot of it's focused on research. Uh, is that the same or similar to the veterinary school or how does that sort of work? Because I know you get a lot of like grant money from different papers that you published or you get published in this journal or that journal. And that's kind of how the grad process works in other science fields. How right. does that work with with the veterinary field? So similarly too, so like um, if we have veterinarians that go for their PhD and are doing research and certain things too. So um, they apply for, for grants to either they're working at the universities, the, the veterinary teaching hospitals, for instance. So um, yeah, it's very similar with how that works. Gotcha. Yeah, it was just more of a curiosity question because there's, I'm sure there's loads of topics to do research on. But so as, we, as we wrap this up, where can uh, we find your socials in, in your podcast? Yeah, well, uh, my podcast is called the Vet Blast Podcast, and uh, you can find that anywhere, of course, just where you find all podcasts. And then I'm on TikTok too, which I absolutely love. So you need to, are you following me on TikTok, by the way? I don't have a TikTok. I, I, when it okay. became popular, I was like, I will waste too much time on this. So I made a decision to not get it. It's a good decision because, yeah, you could definitely go down a rabbit hole, but, uh, it's good education too. So that's what I do. Um, so Dr. Adam Christman 52 on TikTok, And then I have a YouTube channel called the Dr. Christman show. And then I have a Facebook page called the Adam Christman show. And um, I'm missing one. Oh, my Instagram is Adam underscore Christman too. So follow me. It's fun. Perfect. We'll get all those links in the description. Um, any advice, like one, one liner or so of advice for pet, for pet parents, before we wrap um, it up. Yeah, I, I would say um, be proactive than reactive. And what I mean by that is don't let things wait. You know, if they've been vomiting for several days, see them now, you know, don't try to like, oh, it'll get better, it'll get better. Um, you know, be proactive than reactive, get blood work done, get, you know, everything that you can check to make sure you get baselines. Because again, animals don't talk to us. I wish they could. But let me tell you, they're very good at masking signs and disease and illness. So you want to make sure that you listen to your veterinarian and support them. Perfect. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Everybody go check his uh, the links out in the description and we'll see everybody next time. Bye, yes. everybody. Bye, everybody.